The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for the privilege of calling you Father, the privilege of calling you a good and holy and righteous and just God, Father. I was prayed earlier, that's who you are, a marvelous and good and gracious and near and loving God that we know by your will, those of us who are your people here, we know you by your will. We have a privilege given to us to call you Father. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, from this passage here today, would you cause that privilege to seem all the more wonderful? Because we do not have any hope in this world apart from you. But we have in this world and in the next a great hope because of you. Because you say we can call on you and because you say you will hear and because you say you will act and deliver and redeem and have already done so. We can believe that you will fully do so one day. A great hope and a great help. You, our Father, Thank you. And God, as we look at this passage today that is uh, troubling, would you help us to understand what you mean for us to understand from it? Would you build your church with it? Would you draw out worship of you and, and hope in you from it? We look to you and and ask that. And towards that end, Father, would you send your spirit now to us, to me as speaker and to all of us as listener. Send him to illumine the word, to shine a light on the word that we may see what's there. Changed by it. Send him to work on our hearts, to soften them, to, to plow up what is sometimes hard ground that what is in the Word and, and seen there would fall and be planted and would grow up and produce a crop. Lord, make that happen, please. Make it happen in those who already are your people and use it to save others. Father, please do that. Illumine this text, give clarity to my words, and help us to hear you. Pray this in Christ's name, for Christ's glory. Christ's glory. We pray in His name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 13 and the tragedy that is found there. This is a terrible chapter. There are some chapters in the Bible that you read over and over and over again 
happy and rejoicing and eager. And there are some chapters in the Bible that you've probably never read. Or if you've read them, you don't go back there. And this is one of those chapters. It's terrible. But it is in the Bible, by the choice of God, to teach us something. So we will look at it, and we, we will look at it. And as we look at it, may you look at it not... Here's, here's a little caution. It would be easy to look at this kind of like we look at car wrecks on the highways we're passing by. Everybody's rubbernecking, right? Because it's interesting. But rarely do we weep when we pass the car wreck on the highway. We look, it's interesting, we note the details, but it rarely gets us here. So we're going to look at this, and as we look at it, be alert to rubbernecking. May you, may you look at it and find some piercing here. Because this is a tragedy. And it points us towards another larger tragedy. And then in the end, points us towards a hope. David, by, up to this point, has been uh, riding high, really, through the first several chapters of this book. Anointed, brought to the throne. God blesses him and then shocked him in a wonderful way. In, in chapter 7, he, he gave him a promise of a covenant. He promised, I, I will, you don't build me a house, I will come, David, and I will build you a house, and I will raise up from you a son after you who will be my king, my ruler, who will bring my people in and plant them in a place of peace and rest and hope and joy and security, and I will... I will hold him and he will lift up my name and, and I will be glorified and everything will be wonderful all through you. God's kingdom and God's glory and God's people's good all through David's line. And God began to carry that out in chapters 8 and 9 and 10. And then in 11 and 12 it all came to a screeching halt with Bathsheba and Uriah. David uses his power to take by force a woman who is not his wife and then in the aftermath to commit murder so as to deal with his sexual sin. Evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what God calls it when he confronts him. And though, as we saw two weeks ago when we were last in, in 2 Samuel, though God is indeed a God of amazing grace, that was the, that was the point made in the last half of, of 2 Samuel 12, God is a God of amazing grace. He removes David's sin off of him and puts it away somewhere. Ultimately, puts it on Christ. That's who God is. He removes his sin. And David, as we see, understands his standing a full favor before the Lord and then walks in it in the second half of the chapter in some amazing ways. Walks in that full favor, forgiveness. That's real. God's that kind of God and it's, it's an amazing and wonderful and good thing. Restoration of David. We, if we are in Christ, forgiven and restored in our sin. That's true. And though it is true, so too are the consequences. 
There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to our behavior. Always. Something we often forget or find a little hard to understand. God indeed really, 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 really forgives and restores and looks on David in full favor and really, really, really brings consequences. And he, in this case, spelled out what they would be. When he sent Nathan, he said, I'm going to bring to you consequences that match the sin. Violence and sexual affliction will come to David, even in David's very house. God said so. In chapter 13, here it is. And really this begins the whole slide of the rest of the book. It's kind of downhill from here. David and Bathsheba and Uriah is relived and multiplied out in David's life. It's a tragedy. And a sobering warning. So we're going to look at this and we have to pay attention to not just that we not rubberneck in looking at it, but that we also be looking for God who is always the main character in the Bible. Even when, like in this kind of a chapter, he's not mentioned. Even when he's not mentioned. So we're going to see what he has to teach us. We're going to see what he teaches us about himself. And in the end, that will turn us towards him who is our only hope. Let me read. I'm going to read all of chapter 13 and then pass back through to make sure that we understand some of the details and then make a couple of overarching observations. Here's 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. When she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. 
For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And after two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. The king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all of his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled 
and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. 2 Samuel 13. The passage begins, Absalom had not a wife, but a beautiful sister, and another closely associated powerful man lusted after her. And right away, it seems like we've read this story before. It says that Amnon, David's firstborn son, loved Tamar. That's what he would have called it. He felt a desire, a consuming longing in his heart for her. He must. So gripping him that it says he's, he's sick. He's, he's going crazy over it. And the language is so careful. At this point, and all throughout this chapter, the language is, is repeatedly very careful to point out to us what's going on, what exactly is going on. Amnon's going crazy because he couldn't figure out a way to do anything to her. Not with her. He couldn't figure out how to ask her out on a date. She's an object he wants to act upon. And he can't figure out how to get at her to do something to her. Until a sharp-thinking friend, their cousin, wickedly helps him out with a plan. Simple plan, full of deception. Even ropes David into it so that it kind of covers it over with a sense of innocence. And Tamar kindly comes to help out her brother in need. That terminology, brother and sister, as we read it, you probably heard, it's repeatedly brother and sister all throughout the text trying to point something out to us here. They have different mothers, but they are siblings. It's underlining something here. And when his intentions are clear, she attempts to warn him off by calling this an, an outrageous thing. And you would be as one of the outrageous fools in the land. There's something worse going on here than just rape. It's incestuous rape. She offers him, maybe David would let us marry, but that, that's also not allowed in the law. She's just desperate. It's not going to happen. There's something that is a particular and greater evil than just adultery with the close friend's wife. This is the sexual assault of a sister. And that's where the text carefully focuses our attention. Before and after the event, Amnon speaks to his servants. They're moving in a layer. Before and after the event, she pleads with him and he will not listen. And then right in the middle... He's more powerful than her. He takes her. And then hated, 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 hated her. Four times the word hate. Twice with the adjective great applied to it. That's the focus. He did not love her. He hated her. And he attacked and destroyed her as she signifies with the torn robe and the ashes on her head, wailing. This is a living death that she's just experienced. That's what she's showing. Death. He does something to her, finally. And then very literally, verse 17, put this out of my presence. Our 
most of our English translations say woman, the word woman's not in the text. It's just put this out on the curb. How does he think of this thing? This is brutal. I'm done with this. Put it out. Puts her out with a door bolted behind her, leaving her destroyed and desolate. Verse 20, this is sister. And because of this, his brother Absalom hates him. And David heard about it and was very angry. Only very angry. David doesn't do anything. But Absalom does. Patiently hating and waiting two years until now it's his turn to to hatch a clever plan. Again, using David. David is just a a pawn in his son's games here. Using David to again make it look innocent. He invites David, invites all the brothers. It's going to be a great big party. Oh, you can't come? That's too bad. (laughs) What about the firstborn son? Can he come? I mean, it'd be nice to have, you know, the second in command, the crown prince. Maybe Maybe he can come. Oh, okay. But it's all a plan, obviously, to kill Amnon, and it works. Brother kills brother over the destruction of a sister. And Absalom fled. He ran off to his ancestral homeland on his, on his mother's side. This is, uh, she's from there. And he leaves the land, leaving the king and his servants and his sons to mourn the death of wicked Amnon. They all wept very bitterly, it says, verse 36. David mourned day after day, 37. David's attitude is is different here. Something's grabbed him differently than it did with, with Tamar. His son's dead, and he mourns. And he even mourns for Absalom in an unusual way. Judging, verse 39 is... It's difficult to understand, but judging from what follows and his attitude towards Absalom throughout, he has a, a very unusual, weak mourning for Absalom. Absalom cannot be fully embraced because he's a murderer and, and later because he's an insurrectionist. So he can't fully embrace him, but he can't bring himself to exercise justice against him. He's too biased. And so he sits, instead, David just sits like Eli passive in the face of his son's wickedness, kind of depressed and handcuffed while his house falls apart all around him. That's the text. That's hard. If you saw it in in more than a rubbernecking way, if you see that, there's just, from start to finish, it's tragic. What are we supposed to get from that? Probably, most of us say, I don't know, let's read chapter 14 and, and move on. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, what are we supposed to get from that? Well, let me sum it up in this point. And then I'll try to unpack it in two separate pieces. Only God can be trusted to establish the righteous, just kingdom we need in the world, and in our hearts. Only God can be trusted to establish the righteous, just kingdom we need 
in the world out there and in our hearts in here. And unpack that in two different points. Now, here's the first one. Uh, kind of a hopeless point. There is no hope for lasting righteousness and justice in any earthly kingdom. There is no hope. Not in any human authority, not in any place, not in any country or culture, not in any person, not even under David. That's the message here, and it is a, it's a hopeless one, but a realistic one. If you hope for righteousness and justice that lasts, good luck. Or perhaps in a nod to the second point, look elsewhere. There is no hope here for any of that. That's the point of all this chaotic evil. The goal of this text, this is important to, to kind of get for not just this passage, for how we read the whole Bible. The goal of this text is not to teach us that all of this is evil. Very often, that's what we do with passages like this. We, we try to figure out, what do I do with a passage like this? And you come to it, and we look at it, and we say, man, that's wrong. But that's not the point. There is such a careful focus on what happens here, what's done here, that it draws our attention in, and we look at it, and it is if, if we see it for what it is, it, there is a natural rising up of, of indignation, of, of anger, of sorrow, of, of maybe painful identification with it. It draws our attention in there. We see brother destroying sister in, in this evil way, and then brother killing brother, and families in disarray. There it is. But it is not here to teach us that this is evil. We are not to take from it. I guess we shouldn't do that. We know that's not what we're supposed to take from it because the Bible doesn't say that. And it doesn't say that because it doesn't need to say that. Everybody already knows that's wrong. Amnon knows it's wrong. Absalom knows it's wrong. That's why he runs away. Everybody knows all of this is wrong. The law of Moses is already extremely sufficiently clear on rape and incest and lust and deception and theft and covetousness and idolatry and murder. We are not reading this learning that this is wickedness. Then what are we to take from it? That this wickedness is And not just in the world, that also is sufficiently obvious, but that this wickedness is even in the house of David. Hateful atrocity even in the house of David performed by the firstborn son of David on a daughter of David. And... This, this is the heartbreaking kicker here. Verse 21. When King David, his title's added on there. Usually he's just referred to as David. But in verse 21, he's King David, in case we forgot that David's king. That is, in case we forgot, David is the top cop and the top judge in the land. 
The one that the Lord specifically appointed to rule over the people and bring to them righteousness and justice and to carry the people into a place of promised rest and blessing and peace. That king, here he is, and when King David heard of this wickedness, he was royally hacked off and did nothing about it ever. That's the punch. Not that this is wicked, but that this wickedness is, even in the house of the king, King David, who looks at it all and says, Ah! doesn't do anything about it. There isn't an ounce of justice, not an ounce of righteousness, not an ounce of deliverance. Nothing. He just moves on, and she goes home desolate. So much. David, David is so much like so many other people we've read about. This, we've read this story before. This is indeed David and Bathsheba multiplied out, expanded upon. But going back further, this is the weak patriarch, the patriarch, Jacob, Genesis 34, who for fear of man failed to defend his raped daughter. It's happened before. More close, cl- closer to us and worse. This is just like Eli, I mentioned him, who in 1 Samuel did nothing to restrain his wicked sons for their sexual sin with the young women at the tabernacle. I've heard this story before. This is very much like, so similar to the great wickedness at the end of the book of Judges. Remember the book of Judges? We started Samuel by looking at Judges. Because Judges leads us into this. There is great wickedness in Judges because, remember the refrain, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Remember the story there? A woman from Bethlehem, one of David's relatives, Raped and left destroyed, dead, locked out of the house. And there's no justice in the land because there's no king. All that's left is vigilante justice, and so brothers kill brothers over this girl. They need a king, don't they? They need a king. That's the whole point of judges. They need a, a king. If, if only we get a king to put a stop to this. And here is that anointed king, David. And what happens? The very same thing. He does nothing. He is not the shelter to the oppressed that God's King is supposed to be. He is not the shield and the redeemer of the vulnerable and the, and the exploited. Righteousness and justice are not the foundation of His throne. This is, should break your heart or shock your system if you've been looking to David or some other man as a deliverer It should send you looking somewhere else. Maybe to Absalom. Maybe he can help. That doesn't help. It just multiplies. It makes it even worse. Civil war is going to break out over this. There is no righteousness and justice to be found here. There is only evil and injustice and expediency and lust and power and revenge and rage. This wickedness is even in the house of David. And nothing happens but tears upon tears upon tears. Nothing. This is in the house of David because, take it a step further, it is even in the heart of David. 
And in the heart of all the Davids, there are three Davids in this passage. David and two Davidites, his sons. And they all alike are wicked. There's no hope here. Welcome to church. There's something here that you should feel like, you should feel like, this sucks! It's not, I don't think it's really a bad word. Don't worry about that. <laughs> you should feel that. My goodness! My goodness! This is the king, this is God's king, the man after God's own heart, the one set up and his own daughter and his own son. He says, ah! And does nothing about it. And she sits there wailing, robe torn, ashes on her head. And he says, uh, and is going to shed more tears over the one who did it to her. Something's wrong here. And something very much is here. This is just like what happened when they needed a king. Now we have one. We still need a king. Tamar is painfully aware that she needs another father. That she needs another king who will establish righteousness and justice. Who will deal with the sinful passions and appetites of the fallen world all around her. Not just a king who will execute justice against this man because that won't fix it either, will it? It's already happened. Oh, a king that would stop it in the first place. A king that would address, where did this come from? Clue, hatred, 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 hatred. It's a clue. When anybody says something four times in one verse, it's a clue. The problem is not actually not actually, although clearly it is a problem. The problem is not actually the attack. The problem is the heart that gave birth to the attack. And if there's going to be any hope for anybody, any Tamar or any of us who can identify with her, we need more than just a perfectly righteous judge. We need someone who can extend his reign, his authority, into the heart that birthed the crime. Tamar is aware of that, and some of us are very personally aware of that. All of us can read the newspapers. We look around and we see a world ruined with sin, and we need a king who can do more than just crush sin. He's got to fix the thing that births sin. And no earthly power or ruler or culture will ever be able to touch it. Not even the best king there ever was. David. It happens to him. It happens in him. It happens all around him and he does nothing about it. In some of his better moments, he exercises justice. Some of the kings after him would exercise justice. 
It is a good thing, don't get me wrong, it is a good thing to have justice in the land that deals with sin. This is a good blessing, but we need to be really, really, really clear about this. The best that any wonderful, righteous judge or civilization is going to end up doing is addressing symptoms, addressing outcomes. A a bit like, if you picture this, if you've got a, a fire engine parked on the edge of an erupting volcano, somehow not incinerated, pouring water onto all the lava flow, calling for more water, dumping water everywhere while all around it molten rock just comes surging out of the earth. You can't put it out. You can't plug it up. Something's got to get down in there into the the burning heart of the earth and address the problem. We need a king who isn't just dealing up here, but who will go in and change what's going on way down in there. To change what leads to this attitude of, oh, I'm just making myself sick because I want to do something to her. I think I need, I think I want, I think I would be satisfied if. And then hatred, hatred, hatred. Him to her, brother to brother. David enraged. Everything's wrong here. We need a king who can go in there and change that. And that's what we are all looking for and all longing for and through tears sometimes pleading for. And it isn't here. It isn't here. It hasn't come yet. This chapter, in all of its ugliness, it strikes me like like a nail driven in. It just says, here's the wound piercing you. There you go. Done. Because there isn't an answer. The only hope we had is the problem. David did nothing. There is no hope for lasting righteousness and justice in any earthly kingdom from the hands of any earthly magistrate. Nowhere, anywhere here. This chapter makes that extremely clear. And yet, God has said that He means for His people to dwell in a kingdom of righteousness and justice, to know peace and rest and hope. God has said that, and we look everywhere, even to the king that He set up, David, and find it lacking. Will He do it? Yes. So he says. Difficulty is, the so he says becomes really big when you're reading those couple words through your tears. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 34. Those are hard words to read through my tears. So he says, 
Will he? That's a question that we, we, we should just put on the table and, and be honest about. The right Christian church answer is, of course he will. I don't doubt it for a minute. The reality is, all of us doubt it through the tears. Will he do it? Will he bring righteousness and justice to us or not? There's reason to trust him with that promise, even in this terrible chapter, which just takes me to the second point. Ironically, the second observation is because of how bad this is. In other words, the the presence of this evil here and the fact that it really is bad is what leads us to believe in hope that God will bring justice and righteousness. Perhaps a bit of, of irony in that, but let me explain how. Here's the point. God keeps his word to defend and bring about a kingdom of righteousness and justice. God keeps his word to defend and bring about a kingdom of righteousness and justice. All of this destruction, this evil is in the house of David and thank God for it. I said, and thank God for it. And so your response is, what? Thank God for rape and murder? Are you off your rocker? Did you just say that? I did. And I'm not off my rocker if I'm Uriah's mother or Bathsheba's father or grandfather. You see, we are reading right now chapter 13 and there's this there's this problem that rises up in us about this great injustice with no actual solution to it. We, we have the rising up in us this, this great concern. This is wrong. Somebody should do something about this. We have it in chapter 13, but realize that that's, that's Uriah's mother. That's Bathsheba's father or grandfather in chapter 11. This is wrong. The man of power takes the woman that he wants. The man of power kills where he needs to. And nothing happens. This is wrong. Somebody should deal with this. And what God said in chapter 12 is, I'm going to deal with it. You can entrust your cause to me, the God who judges justly. I will address this rightly. I'm going to take the life of a son of David in chapter 12, ultimately alluding to the son of David at the cross, and I will address it by bringing consequence that matches the crime. What David did will be meted out to David. We get catch up with this in chapter 13 today and following. Nathan spoke the word of the Lord. Because you, David, have despised me and done what is evil in my sight, says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, violence and destruction sown 
leads to violence and destruction reaped. David's sin is removed indeed, but consequences come. God brings righteousness and justice. He says he will at least. Will he? He did. Right here. This is in fact what he said he would do back in chapter 7. When he made covenant. Remember when he made covenant with David? He said, when your son sins, he could have added in when you sin, when your son sins, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of men. God said he would discipline him. Well, so he says, will he? Yes. He kept his word right here. The fact that this is hard, that this is terrible, that this is painful, this is atrocious, and that this is in the house of David, is in fact, in, in an interesting roundabout way, proof that God does what He says He will do. Proof that God keeps His Word. Proof that God actually defends righteousness and justice. He defends the cause of Uriah and defends the cause of Bathsheba. Here. And more. Because he also said, when he made covenant in chapter 7, I will discipline him, however, I will not remove my steadfast love off of David and, and your house. I did from Saul. I did from Eli. But I will not from you. I make a promise. God said he would do something, and he kept his word again. Because he continues to work through David and to work through David's line. Even though David sins, and catch this, I've said this before as we preach through 2 Samuel, we'll see this again and again and again. Even though David sins, he works through David's line, and even through, with an R, through the sins of David. Who did God say would be king after David? Solomon. God uses this awful reality to remove the firstborn son and to remove the ambitious son. To bring in the one that he promised he would make king. And it happens. He kept his word again. He disciplines. He brings consequences. But he continues to work through David so as what? To bring in Solomon, the one that we need? No. We don't need him either as we will see. But to continue to bring in the son of David, a king who really, will, who really will set up a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace and rest, who would do all that his father willed, who would extend the reign of God down into the place that needs reigning over. That is only ever so smallly implied here in this chapter. Here in the midst of what is darkness. But if you look for God, what you see in the midst of this darkness is a God who is faithful to His Word and continues to work towards His redeeming purpose. 
to bring in a king who will, in fact, one day establish us in perfect righteousness and justice and peace, who will redeem us, who will wipe away every tear, the one who actually can pull out this nail and patch it over and fill it in so that I can rejoice. I can rejoice. There will, there will be a scar there. We, we will see the scar. When the nail comes out, there's a scar. I don't, I don't know who I'm talking to here. Somebody knows Tamar's story because it's your story. Or something very similar to it. There's been a nail driven into you that cannot be fixed. It can't be fixed by the judge who, who sentenced him to whatever. Can't be. Don't hope in that judge. Don't. It's pointless. It's hopeless. There is, though, a great king who has come and promises one day to fix all of, all of, all of the pain and the hurt and the wickedness that you have suffered under. To pull out the nail, he can do that because he drove a few other nails. He will deal with the wickedness justly. He will bring consequences that are appropriate. You can entrust yourself to the God who judges justly. He holds your heart in His hands and He can heal you and, and fix what's broken inside. It's a good God. That does not explain, I, I do not pretend that that explains everything about why this and why in this degree and why now. I do not know. I am not God. But over every wickedness and over every evil that is, God has said, I am God. I take responsibility for it. I will redeem. I will fix. Trust me. You'll never find it here. But you can find it. In a God who redeems our only hope to establish righteousness and justice that we need out there in the world and even in our own hearts as they suffer and as they cause suffering. God deals with that too. You do have a refuge. You do have a shelter. He says that He will be your deliverer and you can trust Him. He has shown you his faithfulness to keep His Word in part. Trust Him to keep it all the way in the future. A hope and a shelter. A righteous and just refuge. That is God in the Son of David, Jesus. Trust Him. Let me pray. Lord, I know that for perhaps a number of us here, perhaps most of us here, there is information to process and 
things that are familiar, concepts to put in order. But for others of us here, there is, I I think, a a possibility of real present sorrow. Passages like this remind us of things that we wish we could forget sometimes. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that you would put into order what needs to be put into order. But for those ones, would you please draw near, heal the wound. It it will not be fully healed until glory. We know that. You've told us that. But would you begin the healing now? Would you begin the giving of joy now? Would you begin by giving a taste of the glorious inheritance you have secured for her, for him? Please draw near. Please heal. Please assure of righteousness and justice. Please show yourself a refuge. Be our ever-present help in time of need and assure us that you will one day sort it all out rightly. You are our hope, Lord. We trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.